Hey everyone, it's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. During the second half of the episode today, we'll be chatting with Web3 artist Latasha, who runs community at Zora. But before we get to that, let's talk about some news from one of our favorite people in tech to follow. Lucas, you want to <laughs> tee us up for that? Yes. Okay. So if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know in Web3, there are a fair amount of lawsuits. Lawsuits, you know, happen every week. We have another one we can talk about. This week, somebody sued Elon Musk for $258 billion. And this person was just a disgruntled Dogecoin investor who probably bet on the currency at the top and has seen all of their money disappear. So they're suing Elon Musk specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And Tesla and SpaceX saying that they were all essentially a part of a big pyramid scheme to inflate Dogecoin and enrich themselves. That's like, that's that's what I'm pulling away from this. <laughs> wow. So they think Elon was really the one sort of behind all of this and doing some sort of pump and dump situation? <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, it's inarguable that Elon has had like a hand in, an outsized hand in kind of promoting this. You know, he tweets about it. He's like talked about it on SNL. He's called himself the Doge father. Oh like, <laughs> Yeah. So if like someone was going to think that like someone was secretly running things behind the scenes, they'd have a pretty good argument to make. And that's what this person did. His name is Keith Johnson. He's an American cryptocurrency investor. I couldn't find anything else about him online. (laughs) But he like, you know, laid out point by point all of the things Elon has done for Doge. Didn't necessarily read for me as a good legal argument, but in terms of conspiracy theories, it wasn't bad. So it's a class action lawsuit, right? It's not just Keith at this point. Have other people signed on or? I don't really know how to read legal docs that well (laughs) in order to determine that, but it doesn't seem like, I mean, a lot of people were calling it a lawsuit, an LOL suit. (laughs) Because it's just like, yeah, I love that too. Uh, Just because there's like nothing, I, I don't know. It just seems doomed from the start. But yes, he wants everyone else to get in on it. And to be clear, the $258 billion number is triple the amount of money that has come out of Dogecoin from its all-time high to where it currently sits. So it was at 74 cents. Now Dogecoin trades at 5 cents. And I guess doing the math is like 80. So like based on market cap, like 258 billion is three times the amount that was lost. Right. $86 billion has been lost from Dogecoin from its top to its current spot. So naturally- Okay, we're swinging for the fences here, Keith. (laughs) I know. Yeah, Keith's going for it. But so, you know, he filed this lawsuit and then kind of unclear if it was related or if it was just bad press. Dogecoin was trading at five cents, which is where it was basically before its entire like run took off. But Elon tweeted out something for a supporter saying, I will keep supporting Dogecoin. And then in an interview with Bloom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's, He's sticking by his people. And then in an interview with Bloomberg says, I just know a lot of people who are not that wealthy who, you know, have encouraged me to buy and support Dogecoin. I'm responding to those people. I don't know what that means. This is what he said in response to the lawsuit, right? Well, it was in response to a question at this Bloomberg thing, which I think was probably, you know, this lawsuit, as dumb as it was, got a lot of people paying attention to it because it was such a huge number. Yeah, and so many people probably lost money on Doge. Yes. Well, moving on from that quickly, 
Speaking of something else, a lot of people have probably lost money on uh, <laughs> NFTs. And they all yeah. descended upon where you live this week. Yeah, so it's the NFT NYC conference right now, like biggest NFT event of the year. And I am in New York with the unique pleasure of being able to attend. And it's been really interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm still getting over like a cold that I I got at the last crypto conference. So God help me. But no, so (laughs) what's interesting about NFTs right now, like I was noticing that the vibe at this conference was just so positive, even more so maybe than at Consensus, which I, I went to a couple of weeks ago. And I think it just got me thinking about how the NFT market, I mean, yes, we're in a crypto downturn. All crypto companies, including NFT companies, are sort of down and and they're struggling. But the NFT market at the end of the day doesn't always move exactly in tandem with cryptocurrency, right? And I think there is some heightened positivity to the NFT market. I took a look at trading volumes for the past couple of months. And I saw that trading volumes are down overall for NFTs. But what's interesting is they dropped sharply the first week of May, right? Sort of when we started this whole downturn situation. Then they recovered throughout May and they went to another peak at the end of May. And then throughout June, they've been dropping steadily again. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, like since May, they've overall, generally speaking, pretty much just gone downhill. So I thought it was kind of interesting that like NFTs sort of spiked and then went down. Like there's a little more volatility, but it also seems a little more stickiness, right? Yeah. I mean, not to disagree with your read too much, but I also (laughs) feel like there's nothing like misery to promote friendship. And I feel like this NFT NYC must feel like a big group therapy session for all these once had been millionaires or millionaire hopefuls kind of seeing all of their money evaporate. Because I mean, even if they're doing well in denominations of Ethereum, like (laughs) Ethereum has dropped significantly over the past like 10 days, basically. Yeah, yeah. And they're definitely still linked. And I, I thought it was funny that it seems like no one wants to say the word downturn. You know, there, yeah. there's some events that I attended and, you know, I think the word cycle was used a lot, but no one ever said the actual word that starts with a D. And I was, I was kind of <laughs> waiting for it and I didn't hear it. So I well, thought that was yeah. pretty interesting. It's funny. I mean, you like, we're both following hundreds of crypto people on Twitter and just like seeing the people who are like, this is a super cycle. We may never have a crypto winter again, who have just turned into the biggest bears who are just like everything, you know, Bitcoin's going to $2,000. We're all going to be, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the big meme has been everyone like posting their McDonald's applications or something. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. Little tasteless, but it is what it is. Yeah. (laughs) But yes, yeah, I think that there's a lot of doom and gloom in the market still. But we talked about this a little bit. If you own a really expensive NFT, you can't sell part of it. You have to sell the whole thing. So you have to either like things have to be going badly enough that you have to decide that you just want to like divest from like this NFT group or like NFT project versus, you know, if you have $10,000 worth of Bitcoin in a tough market, you can decide to sell like 3000 of it or something like that. But it's kind of a little bit more all or nothing with people's involvement. So as a turn, they feel more like conviction, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I I think that that's kind of what's going on here. And I mean, please forgive me for using the word I'm about to use, which is community. But I do feel (laughs) that, you know, people in the NFT space like... (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's bad. I I shouldn't say that, but it's so overused in crypto. But with NFTs, genuinely, I do think that there is some sense of community and emotional attachment to what you're holding beyond just like holding Bitcoin or holding ETH. So maybe there's a little bit more resistance to sell. I mean, like we talked about, these NFT companies are still struggling for sure, but it seems a little less bad than it is in the overall crypto markets. And there's a big company, there's a big fundraise from a startup, Magic Eden, this past week, which raised at a $1.6 billion valuation, they are like the marketplace for Solana-backed NFTs. And even though OpenSea is the largest NFT marketplace overall, Magic Eden does 
so much more volume on Solana NFTs than OpenSea does. In fact, I think, Lucas, you mentioned that OpenSea did less than 10% of what Magic Eden's volume was in Solana NFTs specifically in the past month. Yeah, I mean, so Ethereum NFTs, they're just expensive to mint. They're expensive. Gas fees are expensive. Solana, that's just like less so the case. People don't like Solana for other reasons, but people like it because the gas fees are incredibly cheap. So as a result, it's like a lower barrier of entry generally to get involved with NFT communities there than it is with ETH. Yeah. And it's interesting that we're seeing activity still in that space despite the downturn. I mean, it's not just the Magic Eden fundraise. Uniswap, the big DeFi exchange, announced this week that they were going to buy an NFT aggregator called Genie, which is also a pretty big move in that industry. There's something really interesting about the NFT community that always intrigues me, but I think it's like crypto in general is basically the community gets stronger <laughs> as like it becomes more controversial in some capacity, it feels like. Like people people get <laughs> yeah. more devoted to it. But it feels like that's like doubly true with NFTs. Like I think people kind of like roll their eyes at like Bitcoin and stuff like that. But like a lot of people genuinely hate NFTs for a lot of reasons. And I think they're a little bit easier to understand maybe. So people are just kind of like, be like, I can like, see a bunch of pictures of monkeys and Google images, like why is one of these worth $200,000? And like people who are NFT wealthy are probably the most annoying <laughs> just from a pure looking at Personality the rewards of capitalism. Well, not even them personally, <laughs> but just like seeing like, oh, so you bought these pictures and now you're super rich. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it, it can be annoying to people. But I think like as a result of it being the most controversial, it also might kind of have the most tight-knit group that might have a better chance of kind of staying together throughout a bear market. Yeah. One other thing I noted at a lot of these NFT NYC events is that there's a lot of celebrities and also just sort of, <laughs> I mean, not like A-list celebrities necessarily. I'm talking sort of like those mid-level like influencers, people who are sort of famous and they have all been at this event. I've seen so many tweets from like friends of mine who are saying like, oh, you know, my, my girlfriends who are like models and don't have any involvement in crypto or like invited to these NFT NYC parties. And I, I do think that's kind of different. Like you didn't really see as much of that with like ETH Denver or consensus. And part of it sure is maybe the city and the location, but I think part of it is like a quirk of the NFT community as well. My favorite thing I saw on Twitter, <laughs> so a startup hired a Snoop Dogg impersonator to <laughs> be at their event. Right. Um, and they, he couldn't legally say that he was Snoop Dogg, so his name tag said Dupe Snog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did people Which, fall for it? Uh, this person, the tweet was from like a, I think it was like a media reporter at NBC or something. It was like, yeah, I tried to like talk to this person's handler to see if I could get an interview with Snoop Dogg. And the handler was like, we can't, this isn't Snoop Dogg. This is a, a lookalike. <laughs> Okay, that's wild. That's wild. I, I love that. <laughs> I, keep NFTing NFT NYC. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, on that note, a lot of things change when there's a downturn. You take a lot of the irrational exuberance out of a market, and you also take a lot of the idealism out. So, like over the past couple years, past few months especially, everybody's been talking about DAOs. And they're these decentralized groups that basically work together and make decisions. They vote with cryptocurrency governance tokens. They make proposals. It's very like a new form of bureaucracy, but one which proponents say can be a more healthy ecosystem or something. Yeah, and more transparent because all the votes are recorded on the blockchain. So that's sort of the premise there. Yes, the transparency is the big special sauce. But as things kind of get more <laughs> desperate and as people see themselves getting a lot less wealthy, it turns out that people collectively making decisions don't always make the best decisions. Uh, there yeah. are a couple, a couple things that happened this week specifically. 
the past couple of weeks. Yeah, it, it can be super difficult. I mean, it's it's some of the challenges that we see with like big democracies too, right? Like even politically, I'm thinking of like India and their voting process and how complex it is. But back to DAOs. So there's this DAO called Merit Circle. They are worth around $370 million and they basically formed to loan NFTs to people who play play to earn crypto games, but they can't afford the initial buy-in. So you'd go to the Merit Circle DAO, you get a loan, and then you're able to have that upfront capital to start playing. Doesn't really matter what they do. The point of what I'm trying to say is that one of their users or one of the members of the Merit Circle DAO, who goes by the pseudonym Honey Barrel, posted that this DAO had taken an investment from a number of different investors. And one of those investors is called Yield Guild Games, YGG. Yield Guild is not actually a VC firm. It's another DAO, which is kind of interesting. Like you have one DAO investing in another, like that shit happens all the time these days. Mm -hmm. And so Merit Circle members, like Honey Barrel, or I was going to say Honey Badger, Honey Barrel <laughs> basically started getting worried that investors, specifically YGG, were going to sell out of their position during the downturn because YGG would have still made a ton of money on their position, even if they exited now. So Honey Barrel was like, okay, look, guys, like we need investors who are here for the long term who are going to stick with our DAO. And they started questioning and sowing dissent about whether YGG is really committed to the long-term growth of the DAO. So the outcome of that was Merit Circle, the DAO ended up voting to kick out YGG as an investor. They literally just ousted them, bought out their stake at a 10x premium from their own treasury. They made that decision. And I mean, it was, it was really controversial because it was overturned. And then, you know, they kind of went back on that and then finally decided that they actually are going to kick this uh, entity out. So the 10X premium is what YGG could have gotten had they sold their stake. They just bought them out at face value of the dollar amount they put into the DAO. So they were basically like, let's pretend this investment never happened and that we never used this money in any capacity, which like <laughs> it's it's controversial enough to take VC money amongst DAOs. And like that's been a big conversation over the past couple of years. But to pretend to try to have it both ways is just like clearly I, I don't know. This is like, everyone looked at this and was like, what the heck are you guys doing? And I think YGG put out a statement basically being like, we don't understand what's going on here. And like, this isn't like <laughs> legally binding. <laughs> right. And it's weird. I mean, look, if I were a venture investor or any sort of institutional investor in a DAO, I would be shitting myself right now because there are like really no protections. And I mean, yeah, like maybe what the DAO did, it's not like legally binding, but who knows, right? If you can just sort of get kicked out based on majority vote, I mean, there's a lot of complexities that come with that. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. That's what's leading to a lot of these problems is it's not even majority vote. A lot of these places have quorum of like 1% of the governance tokens. Right. So basically, if you have a minor whale user who has like a single digit percentage and you like force through a vote in a 12 hour period or something, chances are a lot of people aren't going to check their emails. Chances are like you can just push through whatever you want. And I think that that's led to a couple of these situations where like, yeah, if they like had longer proposal time periods, but also, you know, if there's a quick fix they need to make, they can't really afford to have longer proposal timelines. You have to rush yeah. some of this stuff. The, the challenges of governance. With, exactly. With and like, this is where the benevolent dictator <laughs> recipe probably would work a little bit better for running this stuff. Yeah, stuff's going to get very wild. Which is how, how a lot of traditional companies are run. I yes, mean, completely. And actually, speaking of whales, there was one other shit show that went on in the DAO world that I want to quickly just recap for you all is that Solend, it's a crypto lending platform. There was a whale user on on their platform that basically was accounting for more than 95% of deposits, 
which is super risky, right? Like if that guy, you know, if that person pulls out of the platform, then you have a huge liquidity problem. So the DAO that governs Solend held a governance vote, agreed initially that they're going to kick this whale out and just kick them off the platform completely. And then the DAO voted to overturn that original decision because some users were saying like, it's not right for this protocol to take over a user account, even if it's to mitigate risk. Yeah, they're witnessing a problem that has been happening with a bunch of other things, which is like there are big players who are over leveraged and are potential liquidation risks where like they've borrowed money in order to double down on a currency. And so like, you know, if you look at Celsius or you look at Three Arrows Capital, like those are examples of firms that have very wide reaching implications of them potentially facing insolvency. So in this circumstance, they had this one user who made up this big portion of the pool. And yeah, they were just like, well, you're making bad decisions that are going to negatively affect the entire protocol. We're just going to take over your account through a smart contract upgrade and make it so that it isn't a negative thing for the group. And everyone was just like looking at this and very critical from a... Yeah, the DAO members didn't think that was decentralized because it was a decision made by a couple of members initially and the DAO members kind of came in and they were like, this is not happening. You're not taking over the user account. And it was funny because this is a complaint. Solend is on the Solano ecosystem and like a lot of people kind of dump on Solana because they see it as less decentralized than Ethereum because of just like their underlying infrastructure. And it was like, it was looking like I follow the Solana founder on Twitter and he was basically like, Solana is not Solend. These are different things. Like oh, everyone man. was using this as a way to like talk about how awful Solana was. And he's like, I mean, whatever, some of your complaints are different, but like these aren't uh, the same like, thing. Like leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I'm sure, yeah, leave me alone is probably something that guy yeah. says a lot. <laughs> Honestly, but no, this this all sort of brings me back to thinking about something that Aaron Levy actually said on our last episode, the CEO of Box. And he was talking about, is it really good to have a bunch of people making these decentralized decisions on kind of relatively routine day-to-day issues, right? I think the example Aaron gave was like, imagine everyone voted on where a certain button was placed on the, the next iPhone or like what features it would have. Like we would all disagree on what exactly we want to see out of that, which is part of why DAOs are just struggling so much to get anything done. You know, they really do want to maintain that ethos of decentralization. And DAOs have made it tough for venture backers to get involved. Like when Andreessen Horowitz invested in Friends with Benefits a little while back, I remember the DAO told Andreessen, like, you guys have to give half of your votes to other DAO members because they didn't want that VC influence. So on one hand, that sounds really good in theory, but on the other hand, it's really difficult to make decisions that way. Yes. I think that we're in like the, obviously there've been DAOs before, but we're in a very much a founding era of experimentation. And I think that fundamentally with most forms of experimental governance, you start more open and then you kind of dial in, in terms of exactly how specific you want the decisions that are made democratically to be. So like here, they're allowing these DAOs to make decisions on everything. I think down the road, you're probably going to have more startup hierarchies inside the DAOs that kind of have a little bit more free reign. They have to be transparent about the budgets. You vote on things that are- start looking like companies, basically. Right, exactly, exactly. Like, let's make these look a little bit more like classical shareholders making these bets. I think that the way they're operating now, where a rando user can make a very tactical choice that can have potentially destructive- implications is just, yeah, it's it's not going to turn out well. Yeah. To be clear, I don't know that I'm advocating for centralization, just kind of pointing out some of the issues with decentralization. So watch this space. My views might evolve, but I'd, uh, <laughs> that's what I feel right now. It's hard to have one way or the other feelings about a lot of this stuff because you see so many examples of where it does and doesn't work. So you got to, yeah, you always have to stay open-minded, which is what we, what we strive for. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. 
This week, we chatted with Latasha, an independent musical and visual artist known for using NFTs to monetize her work. She also educates other artists about Web3 through her role as head of community at NFT platform Zora. Hey, Latasha, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. How are you guys doing? Doing well. We're doing awesome. Getting ready for NFT NYC. So it's going to be exciting. Yeah, I know. It's already chaos, but I'm super excited (laughs) for the chaos right now. (laughs) Yeah. So let's dive into it. I mean, so you made it big in the NFT world. You minted your first token of a music video that you made. And I read about this. One of Zora's co-founders ended up buying it for around $1,000. And I'm just curious, like, what were the costs like back then to do something like that? Yeah, back then the costs were way cheaper because it was when we first started. So we were looking at gas fees around, I want to say, $25. When was this? This was in February of 2021. So it was like to watch how things have progressed is insanity to me. And to watch how the gas fees go up and down is crazy. But yeah, when we first started, it was about $25 to make your pieces. And now we're watching things from 100 to, you know. Yeah. And I guess just sort of in that same vein, how would you sort of convince an artist who's kind of skeptical about the high cost of minting an NFT to get into the space? There's so many different avenues that artists take with this. And I, I think I often tell them that it's just like putting things up on an art gallery. Also, I remind them, especially in the music industry, that the cost of even entry within the music industry is so expensive. I mean, to get your songs onto playlists, to get your songs onto the radio, you're usually going to have to pay some amounts that are just absurd from like $10,000 up. So I'm like, would you rather pay $10,000 to a radio station? Right. Or would you rather like pay like $50 to $100 on chain and watch this thing grow, especially in this new fertile soil right now? I feel like there's so many opportunities within Web3 and I'm always reminding artists, you want to get in when it's at the beginnings because right now is when people are watching and you'll be the first to do it. I mean, that's interesting because you got involved obviously with NFTs at a time where this wasn't something that everybody was doing. And you know, I know, I know kind of one of the things people say about NFT is like reputations are built in bear cycles and the money is made in the bull market. So there've been a, a bunch of artists that have gotten involved in the past year or two. You know, we're kind of looking at fairly turbulent times right now in the broader crypto markets. What advice do you have for people who maybe they just started their first NFTs and now they're like, oh, great, Ethereum prices are crashing, less people are interested. What do I do? <laughs> right. I think this is the perfect time, like you said, to start creating and really thinking through your ideas. A lot of the artists that I witnessed come in through the bear market were so excited because they were making these pieces of income that they never made before. Mm-hmm. And now they're definitely like, okay, what's going on? Why is it not the same? And I always try to remind them that this is just like any other industry. We're going to have to deal with waves and just the transformation of ebbs and flows is something you have to be ready for. But I would rather be in this ebb and flow than in any other um, because we've witnessed how things have changed with Bitcoin and other coins in the past. And it's really beautiful to witness that for us too. So I often tell artists to just Think about creating and think about the culture of what you're creating right now. This is the perfect time to really get deep into what you want to see into the space. I also witnessed, you know, a lot of people coming into the space without that mindset of like, what do I really want to channel within this world that we're building here? And now they're like, okay, now is the time to start thinking about that. So I really am excited for those artists that are coming in like that. 
over the past few months, obviously, like NFT volumes have been like billions of dollars every month. There have been a lot of visual artists, recording artists who have been making a living off of this and making more money than they ever thought they would. But I guess as <laughs> volumes go down, are you concerned that people are just going to kind of shift back to traditional platforms just because they have to, because the money isn't necessarily coming mm. in. No, I'm not too concerned about that. I think what will happen is the people who want to stay here will stay. And the people who were just trying it out will figure out other means or come back. I think it's all about just your intention in the space. I often tell artists, be in every market. Don't just feel like you have to be web three. Mm -hmm. Don't just feel like you have to be web two. Try it all because it's better to have multiple streams of income and multiple avenues where your communities are than just one space. And, you know, we've seen the hurdles of our past Web2 worlds. <laughs> I won't say any names of the hurdles, but we've <laughs> seen a lot of hurdles from there. And we're going to see a few here, too. And we have to be ready for that. It's really important for artists to be flexible and not forcing anyone to be flexible. But I think it is really important to like be flexible, especially in the world that we're in right now, because things are going to all always fluctuate. And we're witnessing that beyond just entertainment markets. We're wa watching that in just our lives in general. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to like, I guess, traditional like Web2 kind of artists who are maybe dropping their music on Spotify or SoundCloud versus Web3 native artists like yourself, what sort of additional marketing and promotion is involved when you are like a Web3 native artist? Like is your audience sort of different? Are you doing different things to promote your work? Uh, the audience is definitely different. The audience has definitely transformed into a world that I think has a really different mindset on money, I would say, and mindset on offering and sharing and doing all those aspects in abundance. But I think I do pretty much the same things that I was doing from the past, pushing it on Twitter, pushing it on Instagram. I'm not a big TikTok person, so forgive me, but <laughs> I do push on every other market. And I think the only big difference is, is that we're showing often like how auctions are going and things of that nature. I like to share that with my audience so that they get excited to witness this transformation happen for content. So many of the artists are like, whoa, you just made $50,000 off of a music video. That's insanity. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what it should have always been to me. I think yeah. our music and our art always should have been taken care of in that same realm. And, you know, music video for a long time never got any kind of payback for it. And so now to have a world where that is happening is what it should be to me. And so I'm like hyped for that too. Yeah. Yeah. And that all makes sense. And I guess, you know, even outside of just NFTs, like we've talked a lot about NFTs and what the value is for artists who are creating them. But I think crypto and Web3 has been pitched a lot, particularly to communities who have been historically excluded from the financial system as like a way to build wealth and a way out of their situation. And it's just something I've been thinking about a lot. Like now that we're seeing this huge downturn in prices, do you think that maybe there was a little too much eagerness from the crypto community to like recommend investing in these products that do carry a lot of risk? I think there was eagerness in getting a lot of people in at the same time. I think right. that was probably the part that we needed to think over before because we needed to prepare the people for when there was an ebb and flow. And I, I wish, you know, more markets did that and just educated more. And that's why I built Zortopia, which we'll probably talk about later. But yeah. with, the whole purpose of Zortopia was to really educate folks on the human to human level about crypto and why these ebbs and flows happen and really show out for the peeps that, you know, aren't really necessarily in that mindset all the time and to remind them how these things work. And so, um, 
we'll talk about Zootopia, but I just wanted to say. Oh, we will. We will. <laughs> that is a big reason why, because we want to get people prepared for what this is going to become and the futures that hold into it. I think, you know, there's this kind of broader question about does Web3 matter? Or like, what is even Web3? And a lot of people who are skeptics, I think can probably understand why it's good for creators, but might be a little bit more quizzical on what it means for consumers. So I think that that's also maybe mm. part of the question there with like onboarding all these consumers at the same time. Like what's right. you know, what's in it for them in terms of kind of jumping into this big speculative frenzy? Well, I think there's so many aspects for the consumer that people don't even think about. One, my favorite aspect, obviously, because I love community, is becoming a part of a community that might be about something. For example, you know, we have like Her Story DAOs and we have Unicorn DAOs and we have all these different communities that are growing from the Web3 space. And they are actually taking hold on like activist work and changing the movements in the world and things of that nature. And I love watching that happen. And then consumers come into that because they have never found avenues for those actions, right? And now they're finding action within crypto. The other part of this is obviously new forms of income for these consumers. I watch people like sell my pieces and be so hurt that they sold them, but also feel like, wow, I just got some really big income out of selling a Latasha piece right now. And that's something that we didn't have in the music industry. It's often like a give, but we don't see like this energy exchange happening. And now we're witnessing that with the consumer and the artist. And I think that's super exciting. I think it's something that I've always wanted to. I was like, how can I give my consumer something even more than just the music? And now with crypto, we're witnessing that. And I like to also think that this is like vinyl. You're owning a piece of history right now. Yeah. So, you know, you want to own that piece of history. And so I always remind people of that. Like, imagine... If, you know, Heno or Iman Europe are the next Michael Jackson and you're owning the next Michael Jackson's vinyl piece right now, you know, and that is what I believe NFTs are going to become. I'm really excited for this whole walk we're seeing, especially with NFTs in fashion and how they correlate. And I'm, I'm thinking about like the sneaker heads and people in that yeah. world who like collect sneakers. And it's kind of the same avenues we're witnessing within NFTs. And Bobby Hundreds talks about that a lot, but I always go back to those ideas. It's just a new trade that I think we should all get into because digital work is work at the root of it. And we should definitely see it as mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So I do want to talk about Zorotopia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know it's not the first time that you're hosting this and you've done this before. So what's <laughs> yeah. that all about? Yeah. So Zorotopia started out back in September when I first started as community lead at Zora. And now I'm head of community, which is such a beautiful thing. I wanted to find a way to educate folk on just Web3 and get them all in one room because I was getting so many DMs and emails about NFTs and Web3 and what is it? And so I said, we should just do a webinar. And so we started these webinars out back in September and they're every other Wednesday where I just onboard folks. I onboard about 50 to 100 artists every webinar and we first get them their wallets. We talk about what Web3 is, show them how to mint. And then we get into the deeper intricacies of this thing about like mindsets and how to get prepared for all the ebbs and flows of this, about marketing, about community building, all of that. So it started out as that. and then these communities started to like build their own squads and they started to make group chats and was like, hey, we want to hang out with each other. And so we started Zoratopia after NFT NYC because we saw also there was a lack of representation for BIPOC folk and LGBTQIA plus folk. And we were like, okay, we need to create safe spaces for us. And Zoratopia felt like the safest 
to the T space for us at the time. And I loved watching it grow. So we did one at New York for NFT NYC 2021. And that was beautiful. And then we did Zootopia at South by Southwest. And we also did Art Basel. And so now we have one coming up at NFT NYC for this year. It's huge. It's going to be over 3,000 people attending, which I'm so excited for. It encompasses panels, brunches. We also have art exhibitions within it from Cyberbot and for the TL. And The Void is also a part of that. And then we have some amazing performers from the Web3 space like Toki Monster, Mick Jenkins, myself, Heno, Maruf, and Iman Europe, and a ton of other people. So I'm really hyped. I think this is going to be the experience of experiences for Web3. I'm pushing it for that. And I also really believe that it's going to become something beyond that for the future. I really think that this could be like our Web3 Coachella. I've, I've been looking at like some of the events happening and there's like clearly a ton. I'm also just curious, like what are the vibes going into NFT NYC? Like some of these other events you noted, like there were a little bit happier times for Ethereum prices and stuff like this. Like <laughs> a lot of the people who are going to this are kind of like smiling through the tears a little bit, it seems like, you know, these <laughs> prices down 30 or 40 in the past week, like this is obviously a problem for people who have like amassed wealth over the past year. Like what, what are the vibes going into this conference, you think? Ironically, I was hanging out yesterday with Betty NFT, who runs Dead Fellas, and we were having this conversation about what the vibes are going to be. And I think we all stand that the vibes are going to be amazing just because the people who are going to be there really want to be there. If you are only encompassed in the money aspect of this, <sighs> I feel for you. <laughs> but it's, it's a I tough think time, yeah. It's, it might be a tough time, but I also always want to remind people that this is community built. And so you have to show up with the community and be there. So the more we watch communities come together, a lot of times we watch Ethereum go mm -hmm. up. And so I'm really excited to see NFT NYC be an aspect to why Ethereum possibly goes up. Every time we've had NFT NYC also, we realize that there's a deeper reason for this and Zoratopia as well. We realize that there's like a deeper connection that people are finding with these events and safety and security and finding like families and home, like new homes for them and avenues for them to like be their fullest selves. And that's what I'm the most excited about. And I think that's what a lot of other people are excited about too. I'm curious, you know, having the conversation with the founder of Deadfellas, there's in my mind, there are these, all these different NFT groups talking about community. And I think about like, what type of community is a person who's buying into a profile pick project expecting versus one who's like buying into an individual artist? And I guess like in my mind, and I don't know if this is fair, but like people buying into PFPs, I think are like probably more speculatively motivated, I guess, comparatively. <laughs> but I guess in my mind, like there might be some challenges up ahead if volumes are down and like people are like, well, why am I involved in this specific project if not for the money? But like, do you feel like that's the same mm. case for one of one artists or artists like yourself doing drops? I think people are going to be speculative <laughs> no matter sure. what. It's crypto. It's, um, it's crypto that's after just, all. That's, right. that's, the, that's yeah. the world we're in. But I think it's all about what your intentions are and what you believe in for the projects that you get into, right? We were talking yesterday also about how like 
we collect projects that we don't think ever is going to make a lot of money, but we actually believe in it. And that's from PFP to individual projects. Or we hold on to them. And then before we know it, they actually make a lot of money that we did not expect it to make. I have a few projects that were like that for me. And so I won't say that PFP projects or individual projects have like different belief systems. Mm -hmm. I think it's all about like the individual that is getting into the project themselves and what they decide these projects are going to be for them. I know for Dead Fellas, for example, they have like a beautiful culture and community growing out of the worlds that they're in. And the people actually care about the art. And so I'm really excited to see them do their thing. And then for Zoratopia, which all the artists are pretty much individual artists, but we're supporting them through Zoratopia. A lot of these artists are receiving so many benefits out of being in the crypto space and support that they've never seen before. So it's really just what your intention is back to that. And I think what the consumer decides these projects are going to be for them. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about a community and I've been thinking about this too with some of the recent headlines this week. I mean, and I've seen, you've talked about this in interviews too, about it just being such a challenge that the industry right now is still so white and male, frankly. And like, there's still a lot of, you know, we're still dealing with the same societal issues in Web3 that we deal with outside of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I read the story about Kraken, the crypto exchange this week with the CEO making some really bigoted comments, frankly, and Coinbase CEO sort of chiming in to support that. And I guess in your view, as you know, a woman of color building in Web3, what do you think it's going to take to push back against this? Is representation sort of what we're looking for? Or is it going to take a little bit more pushback than that? I think it's going to take more folks that don't look like white crypto bros to be at the table of these companies. And that's why I'm very grateful to be working at Zora, because I think that I allow for a voice that isn't always at the table. And I think the more we allow diversity within the heads of these companies, the more we'll see change happen. It's really unfortunate to witness this happening because I truly believe innately that Web3 and NFTs are for the disruption of those systems and models. I really do see that they they have done some wonders for BIPOC and LGBTQI plus communities and marginalized communities as a whole have felt like their lives are changing through this space. And to have, you know, the systems that be still be the systems that be hurt. But I really do believe that we're going to find change once we bring more people to the forefront of this thing that don't look the same. And so I always push for that. And I always believe that these artists that like continue to resist, continue to say what needs to be said are going to change the world because of it. You know, I think on, on the topic of representation, that's a big thing here. One of the things I'm curious is there's this idea of decentralization and getting a lot of different voices involved with these projects. But if you look at some of these protocols that are like based around, you know, people with governance tokens voting, it's still the power is very concentrated. So I guess if you look like, you know, if you look at like something like that situation with ENS domains, like a few months ago, ultimately, it didn't necessarily matter how much community backlash there was, because the people who held the governance tokens kind of had a vested interest in whatever that one guy was saying, like kind of continuing to hold on. (laughs) And that was like, you know, (laughs) about as bad as it gets. That was mind blowing. I know, I know. (laughs) If that's not, you know, and everyone was just like, are we going to cancel people in Web3 now? Like, but, you know, I guess that's like kind of part of a broader question, which is that do people who are just getting involved actually have power in these communities or is it still kind of being Mm. stuck with the investor class and like the founder class? Wow. I can't really say what's happening in all communities, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) but I can say that I think it's about what the community is about. Right. And when I witness different communities, I think 
different communities have different governance, right? And like the way they do things is very different. So we kind of look at that aspect. But um, for the communities that I'm a part of, I know that the people always come first. And that is what's the most important to me. And I can't say much for ENS. That was a tough moment for everyone because we were all like, this is the backing of Web3. But we would hope that the governance behind it would see that they need to change things and to do better. But, you know, like we said, this is the systems that we're in mm-hmm. right now and we just got to keep doing the work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's tough, right? It's it's so much like so many other industries that we see and it's like the same problems reflected, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen all kinds of things in this space, but yeah, we have, yeah. seen, <laughs> we've seen all kinds of things. I, I can't even go into all the things that I've seen, but I yeah. know that I've also seen a lot of good in the space and a lot of great change happened for so many. And through like Zora and Zoratopia, I've witnessed like culture have like a rise again and feel like they have a home. And so I'm excited because I know that that means in the next five years, we're going to see some really amazing things happen for culture and the communities that are within it. Yeah. And I guess on that note, for artists themselves, you know, who are maybe just getting into Web3 for the first time, you know, if, if you're an artist and maybe you sell some NFTs, you see a lot of success, you bring in a lot of you have a bunch of wealth in Ethereum right now. You know, I guess <laughs> what's your view on sort of turning that into actual money and building mm. something for the long term without being sort of at the whims of the volatility of crypto? Well, I always say decide what you want to do with your money, right? If you want right. to keep your money in crypto, go for it. But I would also say, like, again, be in multiple streams of income always. Decide if you want to take some of your crypto and put it into different forms of art or, you know, get a marketing team for your music or do other things that could build income in different ways. I think that's really important. I don't think we should ever be cuffed to anything. (laughs) I think we should always be free and as open as possible. And I always tell artists before getting into this space to like just get their mindsets ready for abundance and like what that looks like for them. Because when you see the ebbs and flows, sometimes that could create a lot of mental challenges for a lot of creators. And I'm just hoping that a lot of them like take therapy, get into the spiritual work of money, all of those aspects, because that will help them in this walk and help them decide where to put their monies and to believe in their intuition too, on like what the money is going to do for them and what they want to see happen with their monies. Intention is key in crypto to me. Like it's all about intention always, but especially in Web3. So yeah. Yeah. So last question for you. Who are some of the artists or projects that you're really excited about right now in Web3? Sheesh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> just, just like a I couple. So I know. Many. I'm sure there's a ton. Oh, they're going to all be mad if I miss them. Um, <laughs> I love so many. I mean, of course, I'm excited for Zora because that's the home base. And Zora's been building some really beautiful tools for the people. Like the new API is insane where you can like get any NFT you want. You know, we just got additions. So you can like make your own NFT collection with like three clicks, which is insane because a couple of months ago, that was not a thing (laughs) for a lot of these collections. And then I'm excited for a lot of the musicians coming up. Obviously, I love like Iman Europe, Heno Maroof, um, Halik Mall, who's done amazing things within the space is killing it. 
And I'm hyped for film. I think film is going to take a huge like leap after the bear market um, <laughs> yeah, with, yeah. Um, with a lot of like creative. I think film is going to be the next frontier. And I'm excited for artists like Jamel Reynolds, Terrence Young, who brought a web series into this space. There's a lot of crazy things happening within this space that I don't think everybody's seeing because so many people are focused on the apes and <laughs> no beats to the apes, but we need some more things in the front. So yeah, I'm hyped for I'm hyped for everything that's really about the culture and really about forwarding the movement so that more peoples of all worlds are in the front. Um, So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a ton going on and it sounds like there's going to be a big party happening at NFT NYC. So, yes, yes. Uh, well, I I just want to, you know, this was a great conversation. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and have have a a great Zorotopia party. Thank you. Oh, that felt like a holiday. Thank you so much. (laughs) Hopefully I'll see you there. See you soon. Take care, y'all. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform, and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. Check out the links in our show notes for some of TechCrunch's crypto coverage this week, and you can follow us on at chain underscore reaction on Twitter. We'll see you next week. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kolkata, Carney and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.